from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him he will gather all the nations, and he will separate them, separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord God, we give you praise and we give you thanks, Father, for your many blessings and your mercy upon us today, Lord. Thank you, Father, for calling us out of our beds and into the worship with your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise, Father, for our worship so far this morning, Lord, through our singing and through our liturgy, Lord, through the confession of our sins, Lord, and through our prayers, Lord, for our country and our people, Lord, through our friends, our missionaries, Lord, that have gone out from among us, Lord God, we give you thanks and praise, Lord, for all of it, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for giving it to us. And Lord God, we pray, Father, as we open it now and and discuss it together as your bride, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit among us. And open our minds and our hearts and our ears to believe and to understand and to hear what you have what you have inspired by your spirit. And we pray in the name of the risen and exalted Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as Connor mentioned as we got started this morning, um, we are at the end of ordinary time today. Believe it or not, Advent begins next week. Uh, and when Advent begins, this means that we will begin the cycle of celebration anew. We're leaving ordinary time, ordinary season, and entering into the celebration season. But before we can enter into the celebratory season again, our focus is one more time directed towards Christ enthroned. 
towards our Lord and Redeemer as Christ, as King above all kings and Lord above all lords. So the Feast of Christ the King Sunday, which we are celebrating today, is the most recent addition to the church calendar, for those that didn't know. It was first celebrated in 1926 and added to the calendar then. So, But its inclusion in the celebrations of the church really adds a perfect bookend to the season of ordinary time, where we begin with Trinity Sunday, and then we end now with a celebration of the reign of our Lord and Savior as King over the universe. And so while this is only the, only the 97th celebration of Christ the King, it does have deep roots within the early centuries of the faith. So, for example, Cyril of Alexandria, writing in the late 4th century, writes this. He says, Christ has dominion over all creatures. And this is a dominion, he says, not seized by violence and not seized by a coup, but rather it was seized by his very essence and his very nature. He says, Christ's kingship is founded upon the hypostatic union, founded upon the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And so Cyril says, it is from this union, this hypostatic union, that it follows not only that Christ is to be adored, but that by the very reason of his essence and his nature, that he has power over all creation. Now we in the West, and particularly as Americans, we cannot easily relate to an idea of an absolute monarch. Well, we can read about it in fiction, and we can, you know, watch on the screen as, as King Charles was was, court, uh, was was crowned what just a few months ago, I guess, um, or watch the funeral of Queen Elizabeth last year. We have an idea of it, but we can't relate to it. We don't understand this idea of an absolute governmental ruling authority over us that has supreme power and sovereign power without our say so. In fact, our history as a nation is built upon us rejecting. That very poor, that reject, reacting very poorly against that type of governmenting system, right? We don't like it. Which makes it hard for us sometimes to grasp God's kingly authority. Because God's kingly power and absolute authority pervades all of the Bible. His kingdom is not only a matter of authority and power and majesty, but it is also a matter of justice and of righteousness and of compassion. And our text today illustrates this very beautifully. Now, over the past two weeks, Jesus has, deta- has detailed for us the consummation of his kingdom in both the parable of the ten virgins that we read a couple of weeks ago and then the parable of the talents from last week. But here, in this very last parable of Matthew 25 and of Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives us a direct peek behind the veil. He tears it open for us a little bit. And he details for us his kingly work of sitting in absolute, sovereign, authoritative judgment as the Son of Man. The prophet Joel says this in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, I, speaking for Yahweh, I will gather all of the nations and I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Yahweh is very jealous for his people. The bride of Christ is a precious possession to the Lord our God. And the way in which we treat one another, and even more so the way in which the world treats us, is a very serious concern for Yahweh. And our text for this morning actually speaks to this reality very clearly. But this parable, before we dig into the text, I want to give you a few just interesting tidbits. Because it's fascinating on a few levels, and then we'll dig in and look at a few points. 
First, this parable is laid out in a simple chiastic structure. And it, and it peaks in verse 40 with the main point of the parable being, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, for those that don't know what a chiasm is, I will explain it to you. Think of it like a ladder. Okay, So you've got a two-sided ladder that stood up in front of you. It peaks at the very top. Right, This is verse 40. And on each rung of the ladder, basically, assume there's a mirror. right? And so a text, a biblical text, and a chiasm mirrors itself until it gets to a point. So it will build to the point and then mirror on the way back down. This is how a chiasm works. So this text is laid out in a very interesting chiasm. Secondly, this parable is one that is unique to Matthew's gospel. It doesn't occur in the other three. But it's also a parable that's not really a parable at all. Rather, it is an apocalyptic prophecy. It's an extended metaphor where Jesus uses the analogy of separating sheep and goats to illustrate the judgment of the nations. And so on that point, thirdly, Jesus both is, but also is not, speaking to the church proper in this parable. So by that I mean, not that we can't take something from it, because I'm going to tell you something we can take from it, but the concern, the major concern of this apocalyptic prophecy parable is not primarily about the judgment of the church. That was the concern of the previous two parables of Matthew 25. Rather, the concern, the primary concern of this parable is the judgment of the nations and how they have treated the church, how they have treated the bride of Christ. And so we can actually see all of this in the, first, in the details of just the first three verses, the first three sentences there in your bulletin. So these not only set up the context of the whole story, the whole parable, but also help us to properly interpret it. So listen again. I want to read those first three verses. So Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So starting out, I have to be a little honest here. I had a moment this week where I was a little flustered in my preparation um, because I got caught up in verse 31, just that first sentence there in your bulletin. I got caught up with this really annoying little word, then. That word then bothered me this week. So I kept asking myself, why is there a then here, right? Because today is Christ the King Sunday, right? Why is it only after Jesus comes in his glory with his angels attending him, why is it then that he will sit on his glorious throne? So here is my conundrum, right? Today, again, it's Christ the King Sunday. This is a feast day for the church. Isn't Jesus already enthroned? Now, I will say flat out, the answer is yes, all right? But let me, let me dive into this. So Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, the, the golden-tongued preacher of the patristic era, was really helpful for me here, as he normally is. He writes this. He says, Jesus does not say here in the first verse, he does not say that the coming kingdom is compared to this or to that, as he has been previously speaking. But now, with this parable, Jesus is openly showing himself to be the Son of Man, who will come in his glory. Now, says Chrysostom, now Jesus appears in a different role to those within his hearing. Now, he reproaches. Now he confronts. Now he sits upon his throne of glory. And so what Chrysostom helped me with here 
is, under, is, the, is that, help me to see that the key to understanding this whole apocalyptic prophecy parable lies in the phrase there at the very end of verse 31. It's that phrase, glorious throne. That's the key. So, if you like to highlight or underline or circle or asterisk or whatever you like to do in your Bibles or make a big old mess of notes, whatever you want to do, that is a key phrase to underline because it helps you understand this entire parable. At least it did for me. Because this phrase, glorious throne, helps us to understand that this is the judgment seat of Christ. Chrysostom goes on to write this. He says this, Christ will lift the nations up and bring them before his judgment seat. Now, this might not be all that mind-blowing for you, but it exploded my brain this way. <laughs> it helped me understand this entire parable because that means this word then that really tripped me up this week tells us that it is only after Christ comes in glory that he will then sit upon his judgment seat. And then, like a king who will call together all of those under his rule and authority he will then gather all the nations and separate them out in order to properly judge them based upon their works. There's a couple of things happening in this one verse that really helps us to understand that we need to clear up before we can get to the main point of the, par of the parable. First, in keeping with Matthew's thematic approach of the kingdom of heaven, which this has been his, his big sticking point through the entire gospel, Jesus now is drawing our attention in this parable back to multiple previous lessons that he has presented to us throughout ordinary time as we've walked through this gospel together this year, particularly in chapter 19 and into verse chapter 20. In chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel, we get this story of the rich young man that comes before him. And in that story, Jesus then gives us at least one of the first inklings of this idea of the great inversion in the kingdom of heaven, the last becoming first and the first becoming last. And then Jesus gives a parable, the laborers in the vineyard, in order to illustrate that point. But he says this in chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, or in the regeneration, in the end, in the eschaton, <laughs> when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this keeps with the kingdom of heaven in its consummation. But then secondly, there's a strong case in scripture to be made that this glorious throne of Matthew 25 is a different throne than the one that Jesus is currently occupying. Now bear with me. Right? Don't get up and leave. Right. If I'm making you angry, or if you need to go to the bathroom, hang on for just a minute and let me explain this. All right. So, as we know, right, most of you are nodding your head, so at least I know that I'm not going to be run out of the church this afternoon. So, uh, but as we know, right, based upon both the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the Christian faith for the last 2,000 years, Christ is enthroned at the right hand of the Father bodily right now. Absolutely. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that after Jesus made purification for sins, after his bodily death and bodily resurrection, then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is where Christ is currently sitting. And it is from that throne that Hebrews also tells us in 725 that Christ always lives to make intercession for us who have drawn near to God through him. 
So Christ is absolutely bodily occupying the throne at the right hand of the Father right now. But even more so, the Son of Man seated on his glorious throne is intentionally looking and forcing us to understand Jesus as the final judge sitting on his judgment seat. So in Revelation, John gives us two descriptions of the thrones of Christ. So bear with me. I'm going to read a couple of passages from Revelation. First, I'm going to read all of Revelation 4. This is actually the song that we sang, the Revelation song, the hymn of adoration that we sang before we confessed our sins together. I want to read this entire chapter. So bear with me for a moment as I read Revelation 4. John, the beloved apostle, writes in his apocalypse, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four elders, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four uh, were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns upon their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, each on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Are, there, not were, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings and are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the current throne of the Lord Jesus. We confess this every single week as a church when we confess the creeds together. And it is from that throne where he is currently reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords that he will then come in his glory with angels attending him and then sit upon a different throne. He will sit upon his glorious throne for the purpose of judgment. So listen now to Revelation 20. Just a few verses there, not as long. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, to which, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each, each of them, according to what they had done. So it is from his glorious throne that Christ will not only judge the living and the dead, but also the nations at the end of days. And he tells us this specifically here in the next two sentences of our passage today. I promise I'm not going to go this slow through the whole thing. So he says this, he says, Before him, so when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all of the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Again, Joel tells us in chapter 3, verse 2, I will gather all the nations and I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Here in this final parable of Matthew's gospel, Jesus brings us back to the lessons of Matthew 13, of the parables of the wheat and the weeds and the parables of the net. And it is he who, just as he will separate out the weeds from the wheat, and just as he will separate out the good fish from the bad fish, he will be the one who will separate out the nations for judgment as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. But the main idea of this parable, and where I really want to focus the rest of our time, is again found in verse 40. It's the peak of that chiastic structure that this parable is laid out in. So again, listen to this. It's there at the bottom of your, of your reading. It says, And the king will answer them, speaking to the sheep, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now we're not done with the judgment seat part yet, so keep that, put a pin in that, a little post-it note, we'll come back to it. So a couple of things to, to point out here before we uh, continue into this main point. Especially this exchange that, that happens between Christ as king and the sheep and the goats. First, Jesus says the exact same thing to both. There's only one difference. The difference is whether it is positive or it is negative. You did these things to me. You did not do these things. Second, they respond, both the sheep and the goats respond to the king with virtually the same questions. So again, when did we see you this way and do this or not do this? And just as there was a key phrase in that first verse of this passage, there is likewise a key phrase here in this passage, or in this verse, that serves as our interpretive focal point for this whole parable. And it's this phrase, this. The least of these, my brothers. So, just like glorious throne is a purposeful phrase, my brothers is also a purposeful phrase. So, if you like to highlight or underline or asterisk or make a whole mess of notes in your Bible, then this is a point to do it too. This parable, for anybody that has read any type of Christian history or paid attention to uh, the development of theology and stuff over the last 2,000 years, particularly the last 150 or 80 years or so, this parable has been a point of contention in the church for a long time, especially since the rise of the so-called social gospel movement. Right? So under the influence of the 19th century, so the 1800s, the 19th century liberalism and textual criticism Many biblical scholars, many professors, many theologians, many pastors have taken this text, particularly this verse, 
and taken it as a teaching of a call to the kindness, to, the, to be kind to all the needy, all right? especially the most destitute of all humanity. All right? That's fine. But with this particular social gospel interpretation, this phrase here in verse 40, the least of these my brothers, means needy people everywhere. Right? That's how this is interpreted from a social gospel standpoint. The least of these means every people everywhere that are in need. Proponents of this position would say very clearly that this follows a biblical summons found throughout all of Scripture to love our neighbors and to do good for them. Right? We see this in Leviticus 19. We see it in Matthew 22. James tells us something very clearly as well right? in James 2. Now, let me clear up what I'm not saying before you guys have a second opportunity to throw me out of the building. Right? I'm not saying that we shouldn't care for the poor and the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the sick and the imprisoned. Right? We absolutely should. But the language of this apocalyptic prophecy parable that Jesus uses here suggests that that is not his point in this teaching. So remember, we put a pen in the judgment seat of Christ. Go pull that pen out. Right? By, remind, by, by combining verse 40, the main point, the least of these my brothers, with him sitting in judgment over the nations, this tells us that Jesus is not referring to our command to care for the poor everywhere, but rather to those who are his brothers, the household of God, the church, you and me. And this is clearly evident by the language that he uses. Throughout Matthew's gospel in particular, Jesus calls the needy my brothers. We've seen this some this year in ordinary times. In Matthew, the term brothers means fellow believers. Furthermore, the least is related to the little ones that we read of in Matthew chapter 10. Not referring to children as we have come to read in devotionals and these types of things. The little ones refer to his disciples who go out with his message of the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 28, after his resurrection, and he meets the women, Jesus tells them this. He says, go and tell my brothers, to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. He's not referring to the whole nation of Israel. He's not referring to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or even Pontius Pilate. He is referring to his disciples, the eleven. Further evidence that Jesus is referring to the church and not to all of humanity is in his commendation to the sheep. Listen to verse 34. He says this, so back up a little bit. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Again, consider the language. The word inherit is a term that is used for sons and for daughters, for brothers and for sisters, not for strangers. You do not give an inheritance to somebody you do not know. That only happens when the state seizes your, your property, right? Chrysostom even, he's, again, he's really helpful here. I love this guy. He says, Jesus did not say, take the kingdom. He said, inherit the kingdom. Because it has been prepared for you. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, 
and to the praise of his glorious grace. For everyone who inherits the kingdom of heaven, it is a kingdom that has been prepared for the sons of God through Christ Jesus since the foundations of the world were laid. And so by referring to the recipients of these acts of mercy that we read about through these two exchanges between the sheep and the goats, by referring to these recipients as my brothers, Jesus is identifying himself completely with his people. The union between Jesus and his bride, between Jesus and and, and the church, for us is almost an incomprehensible metaphysical reality. We have a hard time getting our brain wrapped around how identified we are with Jesus in the eyes of God the Father. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 10 that whoever receives one of us, bearing his name, bearing his kingdom, bearing his gospel, whoever receives one of us receives not only him, but receives the Father who sent him. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 that we are hidden in Christ with God. Our union with Christ is so real and it's so cosmically linked that we are as one with Christ as he is with us. No unbeliever, not one, has this union with Jesus. Meaning that the least of these, my brothers, can only be referring to those who are united with him. And to show mercy to a brother or sister in Christ who is experiencing one of these deepest levels of human suffering, like starvation or dehydration or being ostracized as a stranger that is naked and exposed to the elements or from being deathly sick and locked away in prison. To show mercy to a believer in Christ Experiencing these deep levels of suffering is to show mercy to Jesus himself because he is one with those who are united in him. At the very beginning of Ordinary Time this year, we went through Trinity Sunday and then the next week we were in Matthew chapter 9 where he's eating with Matthew and his friends that are tax collectors and prostitutes. And the Pharisees are grumbling in the background. And Jesus directs them back to the scriptures, and he says, tell me what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is a second-level bookend that we have to ordinary time this year. We hit Trinity Sunday, and we're reminded to show mercy. And here he is doing it again. So when Christ sits on his judgment seat and then gathers all the nations before him, He will then separate them for judgment as the Son of Man. And in this apocalyptic prophetic parable, this refers then to the way in which the nations have treated his bride, the little ones, the least in the eyes of a world that rejects both him and his kingdom. That's why his condemnation to the goats is so harsh. It bothers our ears a little bit. But it's, it's because it's not just a rejection of his church, not just a rejection of his brothers, of his bride, of his people. It's a flat-out rejection of himself. This is why he tells them in verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, he will say to the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So notice in that last phrase there in verse 41, The goats are also turned over to a place that has been prepared. But in their case, it's a place of eternal fire and eternal punishment. We read in verse 46, he says, 
These will go away, speaking to the goats, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. But in each case here, both the blessing to the sheep and the cursing to the goats, something has been prepared. The blessing is prepared from the foundations of the world, but the curse has been prepared for the devil and his angels who rebelled. Thomas Aquinas, the the doctor of the church from the Middle Ages, he writes that this place that was created for the devil and his angels, but it was not created for mankind. I find that fascinating. The eternal fire and punishment was created for Satan and his demons, but not for us. The kingdom of heaven has been created from the foundations of the world for mankind. So our orthodox friends are really helpful. They say this. They combine all three of these parables of Matthew 25 together, and they say that this fire was prepared for the devil and his angels, and it shows that God did not create hell for man, but rather people choose hell by their coldness of heart and their neglect of the church, by their being wicked and lazy, and by being willingly unprepared. So, what's our lesson from this morning, right? If if Christ is speaking to the church, but primarily to the nations in this, how are we to take this and celebrate Christ as king? I think we should rightly understand first and primarily that this parable is not telling us to ignore the hungry or the thirsty or the sick or the naked or the stranger or the imprisoned. Far from it. Jesus is not saying that. That would contradict his other teaching. Our actions speak volumes about who we are and who we belong to. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus leaves us with no question as to who we should be caring for. He says we are to treat everyone as our neighbor because everyone is our neighbor. And so we should treat everyone as if they are brothers in Christ because by doing so, we are treating them as if they were Christ himself because he is united with them if they are in him. Our Benedictine brothers and sisters take this principle very seriously. In the rule of St. Benedict, he writes in rule number 53 for monastic, uh, our monastic brothers and sisters, he says this, all guests are to present themselves, who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ himself. For he will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. He says a little later down in that same rule, he says, proper honor must be shown to all and especially those who share our faith. So our lesson this morning is to treat everyone as if they are Christ, regardless of their need. Because as Hebrews tells us, by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And as Jesus describes for us here, he takes the treatment of his precious, beloved bride very seriously. And so should we. Because he stands ready as king with absolute dominion and authority over all creation to render judgment to those who ignore his bride and to proclaim an inheritance to those who care for her. Again, Joel tells us in chapter 3, verse 2, I will gather all the nations and I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. So as we now come to a place where we begin to begin our celebration season anew, This week, contemplate Christ's sovereign glory. Meditate upon his role as king, not only as king and redeemer, but also as the final judge of both the living, the dead, and of the nations. Let us renew 
our longing for the fullness of his reign. But also, let us finally proclaim with the church throughout the ages, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.